Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher, author of The Mission Driven Life, founder of The Mission Driven Mom. Uh, the last month or two, we have had phenomenal growth on this podcast. So thank you so much for sharing it out. If you have a second and you don't mind giving us a review on the app, that would be phenomenal. That would help us to grow as well. And if you feel like this content is helping you, then we'd love to have you share it with others so that we can gather around us even more truly mission-driven moms and build a vibrant, strong community of support. Today we get to continue our feminism series. We've made it all the way up to about the 1800s. Last time we talked about how education, better education, fuller education for women was a huge focus and that started to happen. More education was granted to women. They started being accepted into higher um, spaces of learning and In America, at least, from the early stages of America, girls had been welcome at country local schools and little towns. Um, And so there was already a high, high level of literacy in the United States, um, one of the highest that there's ever been up to that point in the history of the world. And so that was really phenomenal. So that lower education and literacy rates were high And now more and more women were graduating from college and the middle class was growing and growing in that way. So the next really big thing that women wanted to have happen was the vote. Now, it's kind of interesting in terms of the history of suffrage in the United States because there wasn't a lot said about it in the original Constitution. It was really just a state's issue. And it was kind of left up to the states to do what they wanted to do. Now, the mindset, and you know, there's some validity to this for sure, is that if you let only landowners vote, then they will be more invested in the kinds of laws that are enacted. And those laws will protect property rights, which is a fundamental element of freedom. If you can't own your own property, you aren't really free. And so that was a way to help perpetuate freedom for everyone. Women didn't have a lot of property, so that really didn't help them. And in most states, there wasn't a lot of uh, freedom for women with voting. In Europe, this was being pushed forward in the 19th century as well. But interestingly enough, New Jersey gave women the right to vote in 1776, as soon as the declaration was written and we kind of became our own entity, New Jersey gave their women the right to vote. And so in some of those first elections in America, women in New Jersey was voting, but here's the tragic part. Women abused it. So they were voting multiple times and they were caught doing this. In fact, sometimes they were voting up to six times in a single election. And this abuse of the system caused New Jersey in 1807 to repeal the right of women to vote. So then women had to um, 
fight to get that back. And as far as New Jersey goes, I don't think they got it back. I'll check these notes at the end, but I'm pretty sure they didn't get it back until the 19th Amendment, which was in 1920 that it was finally passed. So that's really unfortunate for the women in New Jersey. So in the United States, there's an interesting history around suffrage because in today's world, people think of religious, quote, conservatives as being backwards and oppressive of women and all this kind of thing. But actually, there's a lot of statistics that show that those stereotypes are just not true. And this is one of those cases. You'll probably be very interested to know that um, there were several states that granted the right to vote to women before they were even a state. And it was in these territories that were considered, you know, maybe kind of like super religious and backward or whatever. But before they were even a state, Wyoming in 1869 and then Utah in 1870 were the first territories or states besides New Jersey that gave women the vote. But then they had to go through the process of becoming states and they had to repeal that right until they became states. But then as soon as they became states, they gave the right back to women. Colorado and Idaho were also two other states. Um, Colorado in 1893 and Idaho in 1896 were two other states in the West that are still considered pretty, Colorado maybe not so much now, but definitely considered more religious conservative states, but actually were quite progressive and were willing to give women the vote far before people in the East were willing to. Um, Washington, Montana, and Alaska are the other states, well, they were territories that gave the right to vote to women before the 19th Amendment. So really pretty interesting. So you've probably heard some of this before. Next time we're going to really get into the heat of what, what today's feminism is, what we know it to be. But we're just going to do this last final lead-in of the 19th and 20th centuries and a couple key issues there so that we can kind of arrive at feminism with a more clear understanding. So his, the history of suffrage in the United States, like I was saying, you have these territories that gave the right to vote, you had the states that gave the right to vote, but it was predominantly a states issue. And women would work on their states, but they couldn't make a lot of headway, and so then there started to be more and more and more a movement towards the federal government making that an amendment, which again was another way in which states' rights were taken away, which is unfortunate. But then it would be mandated that women had the right to vote everywhere. So in November of 1815, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was born. What's interesting about her is that her father had wished she was a boy. And she, he would tell her that. And so she kind of always had that in the back of her mind that she needed to, I don't know, excel. So she studied really hard in school. She ended up marrying and had seven children of her own. But in the meantime, she became very passionate about the right to vote for women. And she's the one that put on the 1848 Seneca Falls, New York Convention. 
And she, uh, at that convention, gave out what she called her Declaration of Sentiments. And so she was really the, the, the first very public figure in the United States that was very openly and somewhat aggressively saying, we need to organize, we need to plan, we need to push forward to give women the right to vote. During the Civil War, she focused heavily on the abolishment of slavery, but all through the mid-1800s, she was working really heavily on suffrage, and then she worked on it again after the Civil War. The woman who she worked very closely with, I'm sure you have heard of, Susan B. Anthony, who was uh, five years younger than her, she got really on fire about suffrage. They met and they started working together and really kind of their claim to fame is that they formed the National American Women's Suffrage Association. They ended up partnering with another group and making this organization larger. But it's kind of interesting because in the early days, <laughs> they used some arguments and some reasoning for suffrage that modern day people would find somewhat distasteful. Um, one of them, a really famous one was that women should be able to vote because they're more educated than poor immigrants who come over to the United States and can't speak or write English and they're men and so they get to vote. And so for women it was kind of like, well, we're full-blooded Americans and we were born here and we're educated and we should have the right to vote in our own country before these immigrants do. And, you know, there was a lot of truth in that in terms of they're Americans and they should have the right to vote and they would understand what they wanted for their country and all that kind of stuff. So they're pushing, pushing, pushing. They're organizing. When they formed, it was first the National Women's Suffrage Association and Stanton served as the first president. She helped write the Declaration of Rights. And a few years later at a 4th of July celebration, this Declaration of Rights was presented um, by Susan B. Anthony. She also, Stan also published a book called The Women's Bible, Classic, A Classic Feminist Perspective. And I haven't been able to confirm this, but this is one of the first places I've seen the word feminist used in this way. And it may be that we owe that terminology to Elizabeth Stanton. I'm not absolutely sure. She got backlash for this book from everybody, <laughs> from the people that agreed with her and the people that didn't agree with her. It just seemed too outrageous. But she moved forward with that anyway. They had this Seneca Falls convention and, and they are pushing, 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 working at the state level, working at the national level, doing everything that they can. In the meantime, Many, many years later, in 1885, so this is 70 years after Elizabeth Cady Stanton is born, Alice Paul is born. And she's raised a Quaker, and she's a real smart girl. She goes over to England to study in college, and she sees the suffrage movement there just totally on fire. This is right at the turn, you know, near the turn of the century. And so everything's just really on fire over there. And she, they have some pretty radical methods. And she gets involved in those. She's arrested several times, all this kind of thing. And she 
finds a cause. You know, this is what she's going to devote her life to. This is what she's on fire about. So she comes back from England and she joins this organization started by Stanton and Anthony. And she thinks that they're too conservative. She thinks that they're moving along too slowly. One of the things that I thought was really interesting is that, uh, especially around the turn of the century, around this time, as this organization kind of matured, it's been around for like 50 years at this point. And they're still working on these causes. And I'll tell you in a minute, you know, some other progress that was made in the in mid to late 1800s uh, with women that are awesome. But Alice Paul comes back and she joins this organization and she's like, you guys are going too slow. And so one of, oh, what I was going to say, one of the arguments that this organization had for another one, for why <laughs> women should have the vote was because men were drunkards and women didn't drink to excess like that and weren't known to be drunkards. And so we need prohibition. And if women can vote, they'll outlaw alcohol, which of course we know we had the prohibition phase, which turned out to be not very pretty. But that was another argument that they had that they would, when they were out speaking, that they would say, this is another reason why women need the vote. Well, Alice Paul was young and she was a spitfire and she wanted to do something and she wanted to do it big and she didn't want to wait around for this organization to to make more progress it had kind of gone to congress it kind of sat around at the national level for quite a long time nothing was being done it was kind of basically dead after all their hard work so alice paul forms this organ joins this organization she gets into leadership there they can all tell she's really radical. She doesn't really fit in. She doesn't like their methods. So she gets together with another girl and they form the Union for Women's Suffrage, which becomes the National Women's Party because they really want to do something serious at the national level. So <laughs> this is what she does. Uh, Woodrow Wilson has just won the election and he's got his inauguration coming up. So Alice Paul decides she's going to do what they're doing in Britain, and she's going to form this big, huge kind of protest slash rally slash parade thing. And they're going to kind of let President Wilson know what the women of America want. And they worked hard and got this group together. They got a half a million people to attend. And in a country, in this country, over 100 years ago, we were... The population was much smaller, so that was an even more massive turnout than you'd have today. And they, you know, couldn't let traffic through, and they just kind of had to cooperate. In the end, I think that a few people got arrested, and she kept picketing up around the Capitol, and several people were arrested at different times how one point some women were imprisoned for six months and so I thought this was really fascinating about Alice Ball she decides that in solidarity with the other activists of her organization she's got to be imprisoned herself so she works hard to get herself imprisoned and she receives a seven-month sentence 
but they send her to jail. They're not considered political prisoners. It's her and a few other women. And so it's, it's awful circumstances. It's poor sanitation, infested food, dreadful facilities. I mean, the conditions are really, really harsh. In protest of the conditions, she did what they had done in England and in protest of all the things, you know, that she just wanted women to have the vote. And this is what they had done. She kind of learned in Britain. She went on a hunger strike. And they had to be force-fed <laughs> in order to stay alive this time that they're in prison. In fact, she got so bad that she had to be moved to the psychiatric ward, and she was force-fed raw eggs through a feeding tube. It was shocking that the government of men could look with such extreme content on a, contempt on a movement that was asking nothing except such a simple thing as the right to vote. That's what she said about it. So they get all these pictures taken. And there's this, there's some night where there's some brutality. I don't know a lot of details, which the prison authorities endorsed, known as, as the Night of Terror. And the National Women's Party went to court to protest the treatment of the women in prison. In fact, one woman saw what they looked like and suffered a heart attack at seeing another woman's condition. And so they were moved to the district jail where she kind of languished, but they got all of this documented. So they got pictures, you can find a few online, and they made a really, really big deal about it and pushed really hard until they got them released from prison. And the public pressure at this point was so massive that Wilson just had to relent. And he said there would be a bill on the women's right to vote. And so eventually that went through and it was ratified by the states in 1920. And so they got the right to vote. Now during this time, the kind of, and especially after the Civil War and up to kind of through the Roaring Twenties, historically it's kind of considered the women's era because we became very industrialized and so so many people flooded to the cities but they were making less and so they you know they saw it as an opportunity to get out of poverty but it didn't really work and so women were going to work children were going to work and women were seeing these awful conditions and so there started to be more public movements by women for the relief of different groups that took hold Dorothea Dix, I talked about her in a mission-driven story, was working with the insane and cleaning up uh, the mental hospitals, which was phenomenal. So those kinds of things are going on. And for women, it's quite a liberating time because it's more and more the case that they can have a job and they can make money of their own. And for some women, this is really marvelous, especially the up-and-coming generation. You know, they would leave home, they would get a job, they would have their own money, they would get their own apartment, and they would experience this level of independence that that hadn't really been experienced because women would traditionally just stay at home until they were married. And if they got really, really, you know, like in their mid to late 20s and they weren't married, they probably weren't going to marry in that instance. And then sometimes they'd get a place of their own or become a teacher and have some some independence, but there were not a lot of careers open to them. But those things were changing pretty quickly 
1874, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, this is the one that pushed really hard for prohibition, grew and grew and grew over the next 20 years. It had 150,000 members and pushed really hard for, like I was saying before, for women to vote so that they could get rid of drinking. Also, with industrialization, there was a huge focus on labor-saving devices for women. So even if you were one of the women that stayed at home and raised your kids at home, you could look forward to things, to machines being created for your convenience. And it made life easier and easier for women and gave them more and more time that they had not had before. In 1905, Florence Kelly introduced the National Consumers League. She recognized that women made the lion's share of the financial decisions, especially in consumption and purchases for the family. And so she wanted to, this was her movement to attack child labor and sweatshops. Of course, this was all through the mid to late 19th century into the 20th century. This was a crusade in England and um, in America. And so she wanted women to stop buying things that were created with using child labor, to protest child labor and to put, to put pressure on the companies and on the government to do away with that, which is pretty cool. Of course, more and more women are working outside the home. So you know, there's all this struggle to try to find a place for where some of those children can go and, and kind of how to navigate all of this. A little previously, this is back in 1860, a little before the temperance movement, the temperance union. Uh, well, the, no, sorry. This is around the turn of the century. Jane, Jane Adams was born in 1860. But around the turn of the century, she started up what were called settlement houses. The first one was called Whole House. And this was really the birth of social work. So she was trying to create safe spaces for really, you know, poor children that maybe needed to be housed, maybe needed things to eat. And this movement was, again, a really righteous cause to try to unburden some of the pain of the immigrants, the, the lower classes, the poor, and alleviate some of their suffering, which is really cool. So about this time, a woman is born, September 1879. Her name is Margaret Sanger. And you may not have heard of her, or you may have, you know, whatever, you may have some strong feelings about her. But I want to spend a few minutes talking about her because she represents the next huge thing that was happening for women that's very important to have a little bit of understanding around as we head further into the feminist movement, the, the 20th century feminist movement, because it's, it's a divisive, difficult issue. And there are lots of mixed feelings and opinions about it. So she's born into a Roman Catholic family with 11 kids. Her mother actually had 18 pregnancies. And she died by the time she was 40 of tuberculosis. Her health was so failing. So here she's born into a family where mom is basically always pregnant. And she would say in later years, oh, I don't know. You know, people have lots of life experiences. You never know how much they affect 
you know, your choices. But I have got to believe that that was a huge influence on her because birth control became her life's work and her life's passion. She's, I, I'm sure that she felt that all of those pregnancies and being in poor health and always having so many, you know, mouths to feed and people to attend to really was her mother's undoing. And she may very well have been, you know, angry about that. I don't know if she could admit it, but I, I could imagine her being angry about that. So she grows up, she becomes a nurse, she gets married, she has three children, but while she's working as a nurse, she sees the problems of the, especially the immigrant poor. And she sees all these mothers who are just barely scraping by, like there's hardly enough to eat. And they're always pregnant, you know, have a baby on each hip. They don't know what to do with these children. They feel like they need to work to help provide. And there just don't seem to be any good answers. And the other thing that she's watching is botched abortions. So abortion is illegal and women, you know, if they have an unwanted pregnancy, don't know where to go or what to do. And so it's dangerous. So she decides that this is her cause that she's going to take up. This is the problem in the world that she feels called to solve. And she's decided that the answer is to hand out birth control. So as early as 1916, she, I mean, she's in her 30s by this point. She opens up the first birth control clinic. It's in Brooklyn. And she publicizes it. I mean, it gets shut down pretty quickly. And she gets arrested for it. But she wants to hand out contraceptives to these immigrants so that they can control the number of births that they're, ha- that they're having. Now, what's interesting about Margaret Sanger, and if you want to know a lot about her, she wrote an autobiography. And we can post in the Facebook group, for those of you that are in there, there's a really fascinating interview of her with Mike Wallace in 1957. And I'll tell you a little bit about that in a minute. So you can see for yourself, you know, what she's like and what she's talking about. But she, you know, by, she kind of rejects religion. She's in disagreement with the Catholic Church about birth control. But it goes further than that. She believes in eugenics. And uh, a famous quote, I haven't been able to confirm this, but there's a a famous quote attributed to her that birth control we need birth control to raise a race of thoroughbreds. So we know from sh- for, for sure from her speeches and from her autobiography that she definitely wanted there to be co- population control. She was convinced that we were going to run out of resources if we didn't stop having so many children. She also believed that the mentally and physically handicapped in other groups should be permanently sterilized. She also you know, there's quotes that say, you know, that she wanted to get rid of the black population. You can't, can't really prove that. I don't know if that's absolutely true. There's also a famous picture that floats around of her with the Ku Klux Klan. And it is the case that she did speak to a group affiliated with the Ku Klux Klan, a women's branch, 
She said about it, Always to me, any aroused group was a good group, and therefore I accepted an invitation to talk to the women's branch of the Ku Klux Klan at Silver Lake, New Jersey, one of the weirdest experiences I had in lecturing. So she figured anyone that was willing to listen to her, she would go talk to them. And in doing that, she got a lot of backlash, which we can all understand. But that was her reason for doing it. Now, she wasn't the only one that was pro-eugenics at this time period. There were quite a few members of kind of the upper classes that wanted this to happen. And it it's what fed into, you know, Hitler's understanding and belief of it. And it was the kind of thing he was for. Of course, he took it to the most extreme level possible. Um, but the idea that certain groups and should not be able to have children and that other people should make that decision for them and that that should be controlled. She was very much um, in support of that. She also believed that if we had um, larger groups of the population that were sterilized and we were controlling the population, that it would mean higher wages and better jobs for the working class person. So she thought she was also doing a public service by decreasing the population because she really believed that resources were limited. Now she, throughout her lifetime, was jailed eight different times for the work that she was doing. It's interesting because in this, well, I'll give you a little bit more history before I get to the interview. So she opens up that first birth control center. It was supposed to be secret, but it was shut down pretty quickly. And then in 1921, she started the American Birth Control League, which 20 years later became Planned Parenthood. So she is the founder of Planned Parenthood. Something that you ought to know, and I hope that those that like have this intense hatred of Margaret uh, Sanger won't think that, you know, I'm just taking it too easy on her and aren't painting her as black as she was and all that kind of thing. I'm just trying to be fair about a few things that aren't actually factually substantiated. I'll get in a minute to kind of the damage that's been done. <laughs> but I want to clarify a few things because I absolutely, you know, believe she did, had many, many wrong beliefs, did many, many wrong things with her life um, and, and all of that. But we want to just get all our facts straight, right? We want to have all the information. We want to be honest. We, we want to look at both sides because that's what truth seekers need to do. We want to know the truth. We don't want to just put our blinders on. So that's the case with the eugenics, with the Ku Klux Klan, all that kind of stuff. Now, the interesting thing about Planned Parenthood is that she was anti-abortion. Now, if, especially earlier on, I think that she softened over time in terms of what constituted a justifiable abortion, she didn't think anybody should just be able to go in and get an abortion on demand that wanted to. That's as far as I can gather. But she did think there were, you know, many circumstances where it was justifiable and necessary and that there should be a place where it could be done safely. That wasn't legislated at all, so under no circumstances could, could that happen. So, so there was that, and she did found Planned Parenthood. But the kinds of things, I don't know. 
I, I don't know. I have not read her autobiography. I've, I've read different articles. I've looked at several different sources from both sides of the table. And I'm not trying to give you a whole detailed treatise. I'd like you to go learn about her for yourself. I just think it's important that we understand that the birth control movement was happening during this time and why it was happening and who it was being pushed by. And it was largely being pushed by people who were not religious and who were believed in eugenics and um, but also had the interests of the poor in mind and believed in what they were doing, really believed that it would do the world good. So she was invited all over the world to speak about what she did. So I guess what I'm saying is I don't know if Margaret Sanger would agree with what happens at Planned Parenthood today. I don't, I don't know that that was her vision. Although if she had lived in the world through everything that's gone on because of her political and religious standing, then perhaps she would have gotten to the point where she would have been just fine with all of that. Certainly any organization, family, person, not founded on correct principles is going to head further and further away from them. And so we see kind of the, the collapse in how things were done. And so it's become this organization that is very, very pro-abortion at almost any point of pregnancy and is very, um, has, has awful, horrible practices. What she wanted to do was create a pill. Like she's handing out contraceptives, contraceptives and she wants better and better contraceptives produced. She thinks that's critical, but she would rather not really deal with the abortion question because she would rather just give everyone birth control and just kind of let them make their own decisions about what they wanted to do and when and how they wanted to have kids. Now, of course, there are natural ways to go about doing that that require some self-discipline. <laughs> but uh, be that as it may, that's what she was about. And so all of this was about birth control. And she became deeply committed to creating a birth control pill. And so she kind of spearheaded that. She got the funding around it. She got the doctors and the scientists and they worked on this for, I don't know, like a decade or a lot of years. And it was officially finally released in 1960. So when she gave this interview with Mike Wallace, she was in the trenches of that, working uh, with this group to try to make the birth control pill uh, to create it and to market it and make it available. It's interesting. She, you know, you look at her personal life and you can see that her personal life was not really grounded on principles um, in several ways. It's fascinating because in this interview with Mike Wallace, <laughs> so she divorced her first husband and I didn't go into a lot of details about why that fell apart and the kinds of things that she said about him, but that's what happened. And then the, the next year she married another guy, but this time they wrote up a contract of, what did she call it? A contract of independence or something like that? So that they had separate apartments, I think separate incomes and expenses. They didn't even live together and they would just kind of write letters and notes to each other. And then if they wanted to invite each other to certain events or whatever, then they would do that. And I don't know what that meant in terms of if they were faithful to each other, 
One of the questions that Mike Wallace asked her is, did she think, what does she think about infidelity? And she's like, I don't know. There's so many nuances. There's so many different things about it. I can't really say, I can't really speak for everyone. So clearly this is not a principle centered woman. (laughs) And it may just be because that's how she lived her life or I don't know. And I, I don't claim to be an expert on Margaret Sanger. I just want you to understand how important a role she played moving forward in the 20th century because she was such a huge voice for birth control and then that ended up being that was the key thing that's why i'm making such a big deal about it is because we got the vote and that was important but this new feminist movement in the 50s and especially in the 60s grabbed hold of that idea it was largely about the sexual idea and the sexual revolution and that was tied back into the pill and the birth control pill contributed to making that possible and they were trying to make these you know bad sexual practices mainstream like that was a big part of the goal right and that was all in the name of women having more freedom so she does succeed and get the birth control pill out there was some other milestone that she hit in 1965 i can't remember what it was and then she died the next year so she basically accomplished all the things she wanted to accomplish she was tenacious She pushed and pushed and pushed. So she's in this interview with Mike Wallace, which I will put in the group if you're interested in watching it. And he asks her specifically why you're so passionate about this. And she says, alleviate women's suffering, control the population, and manage the limited resources. Now, in 1957, she could no longer say stuff about eugenics and stuff. It wasn't politically correct anymore. I I would imagine that was still part of her makeup, but she didn't say anything about it. She said that, so this is something interesting that Mike Wallace said. He said that the population at the time in New York was 45% Roman Catholic, which boy, howdy, when I heard that, I was just shocked how far things have come. And so the Roman Catholic Church was playing a huge role. They were the biggest opponents to birth control and to the birth control pill. And so a lot of this conversation hovers around what does the Catholic Church say and what do they believe and, and how, does, how do you oppose that? And she said, you know, Catholics come to the clinics as much as um, non-Catholics. At the time of that interview, there were 500 Planned Parenthood clinics around the country. So, I mean, she was a very, very powerful woman. And she said that the, a lot of the Catholics would say, this is the only position in which I differ with the Catholic Church. I think they're wrong. I think we need birth control. At the time, and it may is probably still the case, the major opposition to birth control by the Catholic Church was that the primary purpose of marriage is to bear children. And when you prevent that, it's wrong. And she kept saying how that was not normal for the Catholic Church to say that and believe that. That was a very unnatural attitude. It was the wrong attitude to take towards marriage. Marriage is about love and family. A couple was perfectly welcome to get married and never have children. And Mike Wallace kept saying, you know, the Catholic Church says it's not about them. It's about natural law. They say you're going against natural law. The natural law is that people should get married and have children. She said, well, they're a bunch of celibates. How would they know? They don't get married. They don't have children. They don't know what it's like. So why do we believe they speak for God and they know what they're talking about? Which is really kind of (laughs) fascinating. 
So, of course, she denies that birth control is going to have any negative consequences, which, of course, it does, because it opens wide up. Of course, women have always been the guardians of morality because they they are the they are the committed more committed gender they want to get married they want to form a permanent bond they want to have children usually kind of more so than men and they raise the children and so when you put no parameters around that and then you put the birth control out birth control pill and then you have this huge movement that says we sh it's our body we should be able to do whatever we want we should be able to get an abortion on demand we should be able to use birth control we should be able to sleep with whoever we want to it's our body well maybe some of that is true in terms of what should be legal or illegal but it's definitely not true when it comes to a moral society and it's really going to to erode the underlying moral fabric of a society, which of course it has done. And we see all these single mothers and then children of single mothers are more involved in crime and more likely to stay in poverty and blah, 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 and all these statistics that are just awful around the consequences of this. So of course the, the last element of this the last piece is, you know, we have, we'll, we'll go into the feminine mystique and all that kind of stuff next month when we really hit the real, when people say feminism, the real beginning of what modern day feminism has come to be. We'll dive into that. But the culmination of the work of Margaret Sanger and then the work of the feminist movement led to Roe versus Wade, the famous case in 1973, where Norma McCorvey was a mother. This was her third child, and she didn't want to have it. And so she went, and, and we don't know how much of this was staged and how much of it was authentic, but they used her case to sue the state of Texas, and Wade was the... Um, uh, district attorney and so it became Roe versus Wade and it went all the way to the Supreme Court and made abortion legal in some respects there's still elements about, about it that are still a state's issue so there's some variance but up to a certain point uh, abortion became legal at that point what's fascinating about McCorvey's story is that she later was converted to Christianity, got baptized, and spent a lot of years as an anti-abortion speaker, leader, crusader. She said that uh, the Roe case was the biggest mistake of her life. She actually left her husband after it all happened. But then there's claims that there was a deathbed like an interview she gave shortly before she died where she said that she'd been paid for her anti-abortion activism. So I don't really know. She might have been a pawn all her life. She might have been willing to sell herself and be paid off by both sides. Who knows? But she <laughs> she was, I don't know. I, I don't know the truth there. 
about that either. But those are some components from, you know, the 1800s and about 150 years we perused really quickly about the progression of, of women, some really incredible, phenomenal women who were involved in powerful causes to alleviate the sufferings of the poor, but also some upper-class, well-educated women who pushed forward, you know, agendas that ended up having negative repercussions on society. So a lot to think about there. That's just a really quick, just a snapshot. I hope that you'll fact check me. I hope that if I've said anything wrong, you'll let me know and, and, and put sources in the group. These are heated issues. These are important issues. So let's keep talking about them. We need to be informed. We need to know what we're talking about. So please get into the Facebook group if you're not there yet, the Mission Room Mom Mastermind Facebook group where we have these kinds of discussions and let us know what you think. And then next month we'll dive into the feminine mystique and, and this intense modern movement, this modern feminist movement. Thanks for joining me and I'll see you next time.